Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing, my friend? Well, I'm here. I'm here and I'm queer. I might not be my usual self, but I'm, I'm going to show up the best I can and see what happens. Do appreciate you. I know that you're running on fumes, so I do appreciate you being here today. Um, however, we do have this small issue of us starting the book of Exodus, and therefore we will likely have a lot to uh, talk about. Uh, we're doing, what is it? We're doing six chapters of the book of Exodus. So this is Exodus 1 through 6. And Exodus mm -hmm. is one of my favorite books in the Bible simply because of the uh, themes that yep. is in it. Uh, but before we go ahead and launch into uh, even some prefatory words on the books of, on the book of Exodus, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So, yeah. uh, again. Wait, I would just say, have you noticed that in that description it says thoughtful and interesting podcasts, but it doesn't say funny podcasts? I need to call yes. them up and say tell them they need to put funny. I don't think you need to do that. Because your boy is funny. I don't think you need to do that at all, Derek. <laughs> I think thoughtful and interesting is and enough. funny. What? No. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. We're talking that, about Exodus okay. today. <laughs> okay, let's go into Exodus. All right. Just by way of uh, introduction, Book of Exodus, uh, it more or less picks up where the uh, Book of Genesis ends. But by the time we get to Exodus, uh, what's this? Chapter 1, verse 8, the narrative has skipped ahead like a couple hundred years to from uh, Joseph bringing his family to Egypt to save them to their descendants being enslaved in that same Egypt. And uh, what, mm -hmm. what we got here, the primary message or purpose of Exodus seems to be displaying the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And there are going to be, I, I guess, two major themes throughout the Exodus story as we explore that uh, fulfillment. And those are uh, the deliverance of God's people and the development of God's people. We're going to see God use Moses to deliver the Israelites out of oppression. And we'll also see all the people who participate in the protection or preservation or the direction of Moses in some way. And then when delivered, we're going to see God teaching them how to live, which is also going to be or spark a series of interesting conversations, uh, conversations around uh, leadership, around organization, around economic justice, around, uh, you know, just generally how to how to treat people, how to live a liberated lifestyle. I honestly cannot wait to get to those parts because uh, that is where we'll talk about things like colonized mindsets, talk about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the probably most important cons of the separatist or nationalist argument, which is it's really easy to separate oneself from a community, but very difficult to separate yourself mentally from a community. Again, we can right. wait till we actually get to that part of the Exodus story to talk about that. But for just for today, there's already a lot to talk about in just these first six chapters. We're going to be exploring the, the, uh, 
themes and messages mm-hmm. of Genesis and the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to make of him a great nation. And the Exodus is basically what he used to do it. Uh, the, this first half is going to be on bringing his descendants out of bondage using Moses as his prophet. And just in these first six verses, we are going to learn a lot from, you know, from just the women who are participating in this story about how to interact with leadership, how to mm-hmm. interact with God, uh, the circumstances under which it is acceptable to engage in quote unquote sinful behavior, uh, the intervention of uh, the feminine, where our loyalty is supposed to be put. Um, gosh, there's just a lot here. I hope we do get to it all today, but, uh, just in these first, I'm probably going to spend the majority of uh, my time concentrated on these uh, first four chapters to, you know, see what we can learn. But in terms of, uh, Mm -hmm. introductory words, uh, brother Derek, what else would you like the people to know before we dive into the text? I want to just say that, um, I've been continuing my study of Old English and a somewhat intensive study of Beowulf. And we don't have time to talk about Beowulf today, but eventually I want to talk about, like, how do we deal with violence in our texts, right? Because we will, when we get to the Passover narrative, uh, the plagues, the, the, the devastation at the Red Sea, like, what, is, what does that mean? Like, how do can we celebrate that or can, what do we do with that? And I I think a similar thing happens in Beowulf and eventually I'll talk about like, is there a way of taking texts that have warfare language in them and redeeming them in some way? And I don't actually know the answer for sure. I think it's about like, what, how does it function for you and what are you doing with it is, is where it goes. So that's the first thing I want to, I just want to put a pause and talk about Beowulf next week. Let's talk about, there's this other document called The Old English Pastoral Care, which was originally written in Latin by Pope Gregory the Great. This is the one of the major great good popes from the ancient world. And it okay. was translated into Old English by King, uh, King uh, Alfred. Also, Alfred the Great. So, one of the interesting things about this text is it very much resonates with something that we've hit upon in our podcast. And if you notice in this text, the Lord has a different message to the Israelites than to Pharaoh, depending on where they are in terms of power and where they're situated. There's a different message. The gospel is going to look differently depending on where you're situated. And that's exactly what this pastoral care document and it's really famous in the uh, in this period of of English literature because King Alfred was like I we don't know Latin very well as a people and we need to like get some books into English so that people can use them and learn them and so this is one of the most important ones he says this is very important we got to have this in English anyway so I'm going to read you in modern English. This is this is not not my translation, but in modern English, here's what something that uh, the Old English Pastoral Care says. Uh, the title of chapter 23 is "How There Ought to Be Great Diversity in and How Differently People Should Be Taught with the Art of Instruction." It is not fitting that we teach all people in one manner, since they are not all of the same mind and the same morals. Therefore, often one and the same lesson, which will help one, will harm the other, 
just as plants and cereals of many sorts are of the nature that some cattle will batten on them, uh, which is to, to become fat, others die. As a horse can be calmed with gentle whistling, and also with identical whistling, dogs can be roused. As also there are many remedies which temper some ailments and aggravate others, as also bread that enhances the vitality of strong people curtails that of children. Because of the diversity of his dependents, the words of the teacher ought to be diverse, that he may commit himself to all his charges, to each according to his suitability, and yet as entirely as he can without straying from the law and from correct doctrine. And then he spends chapters and chapters talking about different categories of people, mostly where they're situated in the social order or in terms of power, whether you are... Um, whether you are a lord or you are a subject or uh, whatever you are in the, in the society, how a Christian teacher needs to uh, respond differently. And essentially, he doesn't use these words, but essentially what uh, the pastoral care text says is that we must comfort those that stand in need of comfort and afflict those that stand in need of affliction, which has mm -hmm. been a theme that we've had for quite some while, mm -hmm. uh, for quite some time. So I just wanted to name that and get that out of the way and it, which gets kind of kind of raises some questions around general conference like general conference can't actually be pastoral because you are literally speaking to 16 million members and in some sense you're speaking to 8 billion people theoretically it's a message for the world it's no way that this can actually be pastoral in the sense that people are getting the message that they need to hear uh, as if it were someone one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing to note. Uh, as you've mentioned, the women of the Exodus narrative, we've got uh, Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives. We've got Yocheved, the mother of Moses. Miriam, the sister of Moses. Batya is the name that the rabbis have given to the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, she's not named in the Hebrew text, but that's uh, one name that she is uh, known by. And then Zipporah, the wife of Moses. Mm -hmm. I also want to name that the word Exodus literally it means coming out. Hello, coming out. We're going to have a coming out party. And <laughs> it's going to be rough. It's gonna. There's going to be some bumps, right? And I want yeah. to liken the scriptures unto myself and i find it tragic that in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints lgbtq people are one of the only populations in the church who are not allowed to liken the scriptures unto ourselves like when we do it it's like heresy or it's like unorthodox or you're betraying the brethren or they give us some type of manipulative spanking saying no that's bad but they everyone else almost i'm not going to say we're the only population because i don't want to leave anyone else but we seem to be one of the most um, consistently hardest hit of these of these uh, lightning topics that we're not allowed to liken the scriptures unto ourselves with boldness. And I just want to say, hello, that's what I'm doing here with the Exodus narrative. Now, the Hebrew word for Egypt is uh, Mitzrayim, and that means a narrow place. 
What is a narrow place? It's a closet, right? And so coming out of this tight, confined place where you're not allowed to live into your truest identity, where you are delivered and liberated out from this closet, out from this place which challenges you, um, your relationship with God, tries to make you conform to something that you're not, is very important, especially when we realize that all of the Bible was written by marginalized people. I can't even think of one one document that was really written by people in power, um, or at least any large, uh, large sense of power. Um, and, and this gets back to something very important. Uh, when we look at the, the outline of the Exodus narrative, yes, we are liberated from Egypt here, and I'm including the we in, in, uh, in the liberation. But Exodus 22, verse 21 says, Do not oppress the stranger, for you were strangers in Egypt. We are not to continue the silence of violence and oppression. So, what did I We're not to continue the cycle of violence and oppression. Even though it is true that hurt people hurt people, that's exactly why we are warned to take this Exodus narrative, but then not redo the same thing. Mm-hmm. I also want to name, are you familiar with the, the Slaves Bible that is owned by Fisk University? Not that specific one, just the yeah. Slave Bible, generally speaking. Yeah, so there is this, um, uh, there's multiple copies, but I've seen the one that belong, that's owned by Fisk University. Okay. And it is published in 1807. It is a selection of texts from the Bible. They have omitted, they have omitted the first part of Exodus. Right. Wonder this why they did that. <laughs> yeah, like it, it, there's not much of a puzzle as to why they omitted. They started out with the Ten Commandments in Exodus mm-hmm. 20. They put mm-hmm. basically all of Genesis, skipped the, the Exodus part of the Exodus, and um, kept in all of the uh, texts that that exhort slaves to obey their masters, and left out the texts that are liberatory. And I just want to name that. Even the oppressors know how liberatory the Bible is. It is so, mm-hmm. so revolutionary and radical that in the right hands, it's liberatory. Now, obviously, in the wrong hands, it can be oppressive. So mm-hmm. so there is that. Um, I also want to name that there... Uh, I think that's about all I wanted to say for this introductory type stuff. Yeah, let me just stop right there, and we'll get to whatever we get to. We'll start in uh, chapter one. Chapter Um, one. Yes, Exodus chapter one. Um, There's a lot in here to consider. There's the, uh, like we already talked about what's happening in these first few chapters. This is the naming of, you know, Jacob's sons. Uh, We see that this is a fruitful clan of approximately 70 Israelites. They multiplied. The land is filled with them. There's a new king. Uh, that does not know Joseph, but I think uh, one of the words that is, uh, you know, the word used can also be translated as didn't care for or didn't take notice of Joseph. So uh, there's that thing as well. And then we learn that uh, the more Egypt oppressed the Israelites, the more they multiplied. So the the new Pharaoh is scared mm-hmm. of uh scared of the israelites because they're more numerous they could overtake them so at first they like try to oppress them deal shrewdly with them lay heavy tasks upon them and when that doesn't work they get put into slavery and also they decide to kill all of the uh 
all of the male babies in Egypt, uh, or rather of the Hebrews. So this leads to a rather interesting part of the Exodus story. I like it because it answers some questions about Mm -hmm. how we judge those who uh, lie under certain circumstances. The midwives, for example, they defy Pharaoh's order to kill the Hebrew boys because, and it states this in the text, they fear God more than they fear uh, the Mm, Pharaoh. Amen. We We need more people like that. Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that today, actually. And uh, then they lie to him about it, lie to Pharaoh about it, both to save the lives of the boys and presumably themselves. It hit me that the wicked Pharaoh didn't actually deserve the truth. Their deception of the Pharaoh and faithfulness to God saves lives, and it is actually rewarded. It says that the midwives are rewarded with families. And there's another... Uh, example of this feminine intervention. This occurs a couple of chapters later, uh, where Zipporah defies patriarchal neglect to honor God in Exodus 4 with a rather strange episode. And I didn't actually know this story existed because it's like all but three verses. But Zipporah, Moses's wife, she circumcises Mm -hmm. their son because... God is about to kill either Moses or his son. I'm not entirely sure. The pronouns mm-hmm. are kind of ambiguous here. And the reason for this killing isn't totally clear. Uh, you know, just like the victim of the potential killing isn't totally clear. But one interpretation of this story that I like is that, uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me, is that Moses failed to circumcise his son and in mm-hmm. so doing failed to lead his family and demonstrate, you know, commitment to God's covenant by fulfilling this most basic of basic observations of circumcision. Moses was Mm -hmm. negligent, and in order to preserve their son's life, uh, Zipporah took matters into her own hands and circumcised her son to uh, deflect God's judgment, which is also a not-so-covert way of telling women that their loyalty is to God first before Mm -hmm. their husbands, Mm -hmm. who also, in this particular case, in Zipporah's case, happened to be the Lord's anointed. So God first before husband, God first before Lord's anointed, and in the case of the midwives, God first before the Pharaoh. Always God first. And uh, I want to use this to talk briefly about the uh, the honor code. There's uh, been a bit of chatter on the internet about Charlie Bird carrying on a relationship with a man despite having signed the honor code and lying about it. Now, First of all, I don't Mm -hmm. really feel I get to opine on how Charlie deals with his situation, so I'm just going to speak more generally to hopefully validate the experience that he's having right now. The Honor Code, I've realized, I I, I had another read of it over this weekend, and I realized that as it stands, it's a whole paradox. I should have realized this a lot sooner, but it's a whole paradox. In the introductory paragraph of the Honor Code, it states that all who represent these church-owned institutions, including the uh, faculty and students, are to, quote, maintain the highest standards of honor, integrity, morality, and consideration of others in personal behavior, close quote. So, like, Mm -hmm. if you sign this document, you've already lost. Like there are parts of this document that denigrate and dehumanize queer folks and for that community to stifle the expression of their identities because of their identities. Like where is the honor in that? Where is the integrity in that? How is that moral? 
Even for allies, it's a losing game. When you know that it's wrong to treat queer people the way the honor code demands, you have to defy it because that's the honorable thing to do. That's real integrity. That's the moral thing to do. That's proper consideration of other people. To obey the spirit of the honor code is to defy its biggest letters. And I therefore Mm -hmm. don't feel to judge anyone who signs the honor code and advocates for queer people. I don't feel to judge queer people who sign the honor code and carry out relationships with people of the same gender in secret. I actually encourage that because of these women in Exodus 1. They disobeyed a direct but wicked order from the Pharaoh in order to save lives of Hebrew children in whom the image of God was. The midwives could either commit murder and live or lie and perhaps die. Like Pharaoh had the power to kill them. He could have He could have had whatever way he wanted with them, but they chose the latter. They chose to save lives, even if it meant lying, and they were blessed for it. So, like, I mean, there's several things we can learn from this particular part of the story, uh, the midwife's contribution to the Exodus story. But one is something that, you know, we've heard Martin Luther King Jr. say, and we don't hear... You know, we don't hear racist folks quote this a bunch, but I really like this quote where he says we are morally obligated to disobey unjust laws. I I believe that includes the queer phobic parts of of the honor code. So I think the midwives have a lot to teach us about what loyalty to God looks like Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what uh, and, you know, how we're supposed to respond in these kind of catch 22 situations where we're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. There's no place harder than God's judgment. So I would definitely Mm -hmm. encourage anybody or validate anybody who finds that in order to realize and fully recognize the authenticity of gay identity or fully recognize the humanity of gay identity. You know, I will say this for me, you know, this isn't, this is just James Jones speaking, but I will just say I'm more than okay with people who will sign the honor code and then disobey it in order to recognize the humanity Mm -hmm. of queer folks. I think that's more honorable, more integrity, more moral than upholding these things that denigrate other people. Right. And I think, Latter-day Saints are especially socialized to be very, very um, picky and, uh, what's the word, Uh, inflexible and um, uh, rigid on uh, on certain lists of commandments, but then completely not on the others. Mm Mm-hmm. I think one of them is lying, right? They're like, ooh, lying, mm-hmm. it's bad. They, they'd rather say something racist. Uh, they don't have the same sort of scruples about racism that they do about lying. And I'm like, you have that entirely backwards. Mm-hmm. Entirely backwards. Like certain superficial things like being more worried about whether coffee goes into your mouth whether, than whether uh, something misogynist comes out of your mouth. That is backwards. Like, so much of what Jesus taught was about recentering what's important, how you how you love God and how you love neighbor. And so you have to look at commandments about truth and the right use of truth in light of uh, the, these larger commands towards protecting life and uh, love for God and love for neighbor. So people will want to make lying into an absolute commandment and not realize that like Eve, you are going to be faced with what happens when commandments conflict and when something 
uh, of higher precedence takes priority, not only may you lie, but you must lie, right? Like mm. if the Nazis come and say, are you hiding Jews? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Someone says, where are the Jews? I'm going to say no. On the Underground Railroad, it was based on lying. Like that's what it was. Like so, mm. so much of the best things in this world are based on deception. And I, I hate to call it deception because it sounds like you owe someone the truth and you're not giving it to them, whereas these oppressors do not are not entitled to the truth. Right. Jesus said very clearly in Matthew chapter seven, "Do not give what is holy um, to the dogs." Mm. Right, right. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Right. That is a commandment. Right. And so I think yeah. our um, LGBT dignity, in many cases, that's our pearls. We're not. You have no right to look at our pearls. Right. Mm-hmm. So. You have no, we have no obligation to share them with you. If you are not, if you're going to trash on them, you don't get to see them. So that's all I'm saying about that. Um, But there's cases where in the same Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, Jesus actually commands deception. People don't realize this, but he says, when you fast, you literally need to go to lengths to prevent people from knowing you're fasting. You need Mm. to... Um, wash yourself, anoint your head with oil. You need to um, make sure that it's not obvious to others that you're fasting. Jesus literally commands you to deceive people, right? I think there's just so many people who who do not have a holistic understanding of the Bible. They're going to just take this little, ooh, you lied, you lied. I'm like, okay, lying sometimes is the best. Now, I don't want to get carried away with this because there's going to be some times where people are going to say, oh, now anything is justified. And that's not correct. I'm not an ethicist. But if you're seriously going to look at deception ethically, you need to have an entire system in place. You need to have checks and balances in place. You need to know exactly what you're doing, what the consequences are, um, what the higher law that you are obeying is. You can't just lie because you want to get out of something embarrassing. You can't just lie to protect yourself. You can't just lie to protect someone in power. Like, the times where lying is justified, these times are very narrowly uh, circumscribed by a large number of criteria. So I'm not going to get into that, but I don't want anyone to say, well, now we can't trust Derek. And But yeah, there's been times where someone asks me, is so-and-so trans? And I'm saying, nope, nope, they're not, right? And then people believe me, right? So mm-hmm. my point is there are things more important than your access to my truth. And I think um, there's, there's going to be queer people who were raised in the Latter-day Saint context and absorbed all of the scrupulosity around lying – that they didn't absorb around racism or anything like that. Like, and they're like, oh, no. I mean, Charlie is so awful. Like, he he should have, yeah, the awful, awful. I'm like, mm-hmm. you are playing the same game that you are now saying. Uh, I'm talking mostly about, like, ex-Latter-day Saint queer people who have left the church and now mm-hmm. criticize Charlie for doing what he needs to do to survive within it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you, are, you, you left the church, but you didn't leave it alone. I hate to use that, but I mean they didn't leave. <laughs> they didn't leave behind all of this scrupulosity that the church gave them, and uh, which they probably should have left behind uh, if they want to um, really. Anyway, I'm probably getting stepping in a whole bunch of mess right now, but yeah, I just we got into some, ethics. I, I'm I'm enjoying it. <laughs> thought, thought, thoughts like this. I mean, like. Uh, 
oh, I could probably talk about a couple of hours on this, so I better pause. I mean, sounds good. Like dealing with dealing with the Nazis, dealing with uh, in, uh, slave uh, people who enslave others. Like, there's just so many ways that deception is not only not only justified, but you are commanded to deceive. I think that is quite clear when you look at the. Uh, the Bible holistically with any sense of goodness and love and justice. Um, anyway, back to, I wanted to say something about, and, and I've brought up this, uh, this uh, Exodus chapter four narrative with Zipporah. And I've used it before. I think I've used it on the podcast before. Cause I know I've taught this for many years, mm-hmm. but this is a good example of how, misguided it is to say oh we just gotta obey the prophets and wait for the prophets and the prophets got everything like nope here a prophet of the lord was about to be like you said the text is a little bit ambiguous but it looks like one of the most likely possibilities is that the lord is going to kill moses for not circumcising his own son mm-hmm. and zipporah steps in and does what is right when the prophet of the Lord didn't do the do it, and I take this as justifying of of us doing the right thing. If the prophet's not doing the right thing, well, we're going to step in and do the right thing, and we're going to save Before lives. More people die, <laughs> yeah. right? So people say, "Oh no, you're arc steadying." I'm like, "Did you even listen to our episode on the arc steadying?" On the arc, yes. Yeah. So I Googled that a while ago, my guy. Like when I first heard that story about arc setting, like you were the one to teach me about it. And you know what the top hit for when you Google arc steadying or arc steadier, you know what the top hit is? Nope. It's what? us. Like it's us talking about steadying the arc and the evils of steadying the arc. I think we're the primary faith, if not the only faith, who talks about steadying the arc as like a means of telling people to stay in their lanes, like telling people who are not church leadership to mind their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that we even have Zipporah's words. Like, let's go in. I'm going to read from Alter's translation. Sorry, we're going out of order, but since you mentioned it, I had it planned for I later, did. but we're going to go in. <laughs> this right. is uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. Mm-hmm. And it happened on the way. Oh, and here's what happens. So at this point, uh, Moses has married Zipporah in Midian. So he's in Midian and he's just been called by God to go back to Egypt. And he's on his way back to Egypt and this is what it says. And it happened on the way at the night camp that the Lord encountered him and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it to his feet. And she said, yes, a bridegroom of blood you are to me. And he let him go. By that, most commentators mean the Lord let Moses go. Then did she say a bridegroom of blood by the circumcising. So, like, she she names it. Like, she, it's hard to under, interpret exactly what she meant, but she clearly is speaking with power and authority and knowledge and wisdom. And she stepped in and did what a prophet of the Lord didn't do. Mm-hmm. And this is... This is by definition leading out. Like she's le- she, that. Mm-hmm. There's our girl Sephora leading out. Okay, Ooh. and so I want to follow in her footsteps, mm-hmm. and well, not circumcise everyone, but uh, do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. If people who are supposed to get it done don't get it done, we not only may but must step in 
and do it. So I don't mm-hmm. think we have any excuse for all this naive, like, oh, we just got to wait for the prophet. Like, we're all dependent on the prophet. Like, the prophet is there to serve us. We're not there to serve mm. the prophet. So we shouldn't be waiting and dependent, like, absolutely on the the prophet. Yeah. Yeah. So let me get back to. Uh, oh, did I did I interrupt you? Were you about to say something? Because I've no, no, no. I finished. More to say. I finished a thought. Oh, I you finished, finished a your thought. thought. <laughs> yeah, we were still talking about the uh, women in the uh, in chapter one, the midwives. Oh yes, we let's get back the to the women of chapter one. So I want to okay. name that there is a, uh, and I didn't prepare well, so I don't know exactly where this is, but there is a um, a midrash that talks about the women of. Among the Hebrews. So after Pharaoh uh, gives his awful decree to kill all the baby boys, mm-hmm. the men of among the Hebrews say to themselves, okay, we can solve this. What we're just going to do is no longer have sex with our wives, and so then we won't have any babies, and then there's no babies to kill. And the women of the Hebrews said... No, that's a stupid plan because you are doing in one generation what Pharaoh's trying to do over time. If we don't have any children, we've lost. We're playing into his game. So the women insisted on uh, having sexual relations with the men and having uh, babies and multiplying stronger and stronger. And that's exactly what we get in chapter one. Persecution, I don't want this to be gaslighty. But persecution makes us stronger. And we see this in Acts chapter 8 after the stoning of Stephen. Boy, did Christianity take off right after after that. And it spread Mm -hmm. like wildfire because they scattered everyone out of Jerusalem and then it went everywhere. And I think there's a sense in which um, persecution typically makes us or can make us stronger as queer people, right? We're getting hit by a lot of, we had four major anti-gay attacks on the LGBT Mormon community in the past few, past three weeks, I think. Um, anyway, I also want to name these midwives. Uh, we have their names, Shifra and Pua. Uh, these midwives are not identified by their relationship to a man. They are not described as anyone's daughter anyone's wife or uh, anyone's mother, right? These are uh, defined on their own terms based on their own wisdom, their own initiative, their own ideas. And I just want to name that here. And I think Shifra and Pua are some of my my heroes in the text. Um, there is an interesting thing about the history of the King James Version. So okay. before the King James Version, the authorized Bible in Uh, England was the Bishop's Bible. But in contrast to the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible was uh, was very popular. And the Geneva Bible is the one that's used by many of the writers in England at the time, like Shakespeare used the Geneva Bible. Uh, The the pilgrims, when they came to the United States, they used the the Geneva Bible. And uh, so... The problem with the Geneva Bible is that it had a significant number of footnotes to it with commentary and interpretation. And one of the footnotes in this chapter said that the midwives were justified in disobeying the king. And guess what King James does not want in his Bible? He does not want footnotes that say it is justified 
to disobey the king. So he decides <laughs> to have the King James Bible with no interpretive footnotes. There's like footnotes about the Hebrew and Greek meaning and stuff like that, but there's no like little commentary. So that is exactly what one of the primary um, ba- uh, reasons behind the formation of the King James the King James Version. Mm-hmm. Like you said, um, we talked about the deception. Uh, we talked about whether in, in, oppressors really are entitled to truth. And so what I don't want to miss is the verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1, where it's the people of Israel who get to hold God accountable. Let me find this. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1. You said chapter 1. Chapter 1. Yeah, I'm still in chapter 1. Yeah, I'm, I don't see a 23 and a 24 in chapter 1. Um. Oh, I'm in, I'm in chapter two. Okay, Sorry. cool. Yeah, chapter two. There we go. That looks and, and it happened when a long time had passed that the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned from the bondage and cried out, and their plea from the bondage went up to God. And God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew, right? Mm. I just think that is so beautiful. Dude, easily like one we, of the most beautiful words in Ex- some of the most beautiful words in Exodus, if not right. all of Scripture. Like, obviously here God is personified with a lot of human imagery and human emotion because, like, God is now remembering and God is seeing and God is—it it, it, it seems like God is discovering something that God didn't already know. But I think this testifies to the human experience on this, Right. We experience God as learning, and we experience God as listening, and like the, the, the cries of LGBTQ saints are going up to God, and boy, is God going to be mad, right? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the God that, of, this is the God of Exodus. This is, I mean, this mm-hmm. has inspired every liberation theology movement. I yep. probably could say that. Yep. It's inspired every liberation from the uh, Latin American liberation theology around the, the poor in uh, with Gustavo yep. and um, black liberation theology, Kyle. feminist liberation theology, disability liberation. Basically, almost every lib- liberation theology is critically rooted in Exodus. So um, almost by... Uh, by I mean it, it just has to be that way, right? Because this is right. the the uh, prototypical liberation story. The this formation is where God is identified mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a member of the covenant, a God of the oppressed, a God who leads people out of oppression. This is where that happens. Yeah, and this is gets back to what happened to let God prevail. What about let God's people prevail in holding God accountable? Right? Mm-hmm. We've got to prevail sometimes, and um, uh. And then, and then I want to just talk about. Okay, so we've got Moses born now. Moses born and being hid among. Uh, um, this is earlier in chapter two. Mm. So we've got Moses's parents, Amram and Yochaved. They decide to hide the child, and uh, they, in a way, sort of in a, in a touch of dramatic irony, they actually do what Pharaoh says of, of dump your baby in the Nile. But they did it in a way that saved the baby mm-hmm. um and uh 
so here's uh, one interesting thing about Pharaoh's daughter. She's called Batya in the um, in the rabbinic tradition, and you'll see that she has her own wisdom too. She speaks out with compassion. She speaks out with justice, and she sees in this child someone who deserves to be saved. And she also is one of the greatest financiers in the Bible because she went down to the banks of the Nile and withdrew a little profit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Hopefully I got that in there before you found it, saw it coming. No, I did not see it coming. As, oh, great. I okay. mean, I imagine she was rich. She was the Pharaoh's daughter, but I was like, where's Derek about to go with this? And then I heard <laughs> banks of the Nile and I was like, I missed it. I, mm. <laughs> okay. So I want to jump to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Okay. Hebrews chapter 11. And there's a number of amazing, amazing things here for queer people as well. By faith, when Moses was born, his parents hid him for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, when he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. Hmm. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for his eyes were fixed on the reward. By faith, he left Egypt without fearing the king's anger. For he persevered as though he could see the one who is invisible. I just find this so amazing because you see Moses could have just kept his privilege. He could have said, nope, I'm chilling here in this little, this Pharaoh's court. Like I, I got everything. I don't need to be in solidarity with my people. Mm -hmm. I could just chill. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be queer people who are going to just chill. I'm not going to name their names because the Lord is going to, going to hopefully restore them before they need to be called out. But there's queer people that are sitting in high places, chilling, and they do not want to give up their pleasure. I mean, their uh, privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say, you know what? Why don't you choose rather to be ill-treated with us than to get the benefits of cooperating with? I'm sure you could name black people. Oh, absolutely. Right? That 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 uh, that do what Moses didn't do. And mm -hmm. I just find it so amazing. Now, why was he able to do this? It's because he was fixed on the reward. He regarded that abuse suffered for Christ, which is a very interesting Christological take. In the sense that, like, going back here, Moses was actually doing this to be on the side of Christ, which is a little bit anachronistic because we, of course, don't have Christ named in, in Exodus. Mm -hmm. But the author of Hebrews is is seeing this and connecting it with the cross of Christ. And this is what empowered Moses' parents to not be afraid and empowered Moses to not be afraid. Because why would you be afraid of the king when you know God? And that's exactly what the, mid, with the midwives were dealing with. Yeah. So that's all I want to say. We're, we're going to be running out of time if I say everything I want to say. So I want to talk about <laughs> the burning bush. Oh, and can just I stay really... in chapter two a little bit longer? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, what else sorry. in chapter two? I just wanted to mention briefly that uh, this intervention of, uh, you know, the family of Moses, his mother, his sister, and then eventually Pharaoh's daughter, uh, it highlights one more thing um, worth mentioning, which is the incredible 
uh, I guess, providential care God takes when people operate according to his agenda. You know, all -hmm. of these women were used by God to protect the future leader of the Exodus. Therefore, all these women were used Mm -hmm. to fill a prophetic role, to help fill Mm -hmm. God's Mm -hmm. promise Mm -hmm. to the Israelites. So I just want to, like, Obviously, it's not always going to work like that, or it's not going to work that quickly. But uh, something that we see, and you know, all these people conspiring to protect Moses and defy this edict and to otherwise protect life, like when you try to live according to God's agenda, whether than the king's agenda or you know anybody else's agenda, um, God takes care. Like. I find Mm -hmm. that in my life when I've tried to live according to God's agenda, like doesn't mean that my life gets easier necessarily, but God does take care when people operate according to his agenda as opposed to uh, man's. So I just wanted to say that before we, uh, you know, left. Uh, I mean, we're still in chapter, we're about to get to the burning bush. Is that chapter three or still chapter two? Yeah, that's, that's in chapter three. Okay. I guess I have, okay, I lied. I got one more thing to say in chapter two. And uh, this is mainly related to Moses' story as an adult. And it also relates to our conversation about the people in our communities who would rather be comfortable uh, and Mm -hmm. stay with their privilege rather than, you know, live in accordance with what the gospel of Christ would demand us to do. And uh, even though Moses committed an act of murder and even, you know, different scholars have different interpretations or have different feelings about whether or not to call Moses's act an act of murder. I I still feel like this is a good enough story starting in uh, verse 11, where we see that proper allyship may change your relationship with the institutions you're a part of. And it may change your privilege status. Like Mm -hmm. Moses went from like, as soon as you said, talked about, you know, the people that you know, that you could name who are in positions of privilege and who have, you know, influence. Moses went from royalty in Egypt to a shepherd in Midian in the space of about seven verses. Mm -hmm. Like this is a cost that is associated with standing up for marginalized folks or standing in solidarity with the people who need to be stood Mm -hmm. in solidarity with, Mm -hmm. um, that, that is quite a downgrade. You know, Moses was a whole adult, uh, you know, a royal in Egypt and, you know, the cost of his allyship was basically, you know, exile. You know, he had to become a uh, a shepherd in Midian. But we're also going to see that those 40 years he spent in the wilderness, mm-hmm. very formative to his experience, to his uh, development as a man and eventually as, you know, God's prophet. A, a development that we are going to see was not wholly complete, but at the very least, good enough for him to do the job that the Lord called him to do. That is the uh, benefit of proper discipleship, a proper allyship. Yeah, there may be a downgrade or some other severe cost, but uh, there is a very tangible and very um, necessary benefit at the end of that experience of allyship. Okay, now we can go to three. Well, I have... I want to quote two paragraphs from the Queer Bible Commentary, and I think these are so good that even though they're, we're going to take a long time, this is uh, it's worth it. I think we're, we're okay. people are just going to have to forgive us for going over time this this week. Um, <laughs> okay, and I should say this Queer Bible Commentary is a is about twenty years old now. If you think about that, I think it, I think this came out in the early two thousands actually. So it's, it's about twenty years old, and the, the queer 
conversation has moved a lot and some of our terminology has changed. And so one of the words that this uh, uh, commentator used is the words, uh, the word trans-lesbi-gay. All one word, trans-lesbi-gay. Okay. Uh, and we don't really use that word anymore, but I'm just going to read it the way it is. So here's what it says. Quote, in terms of individual liberation, the stories surrounding Moses' birth and life as a young man in Egypt reflect the experiences of gay people in the process of coming out. First hiding and then revealing identity resonates deeply. Pharaoh's efforts to curtail the power of the Israelites included a campaign to kill all the boys at birth. In order to save the life of Moses, he was hidden by his family and raised as an Egyptian prince by Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses was not brought up as a Hebrew, but as an Egyptian in an alien culture. trans by gay people can identify with Moses' experience of being raised by people not like himself. People who are labeled as different by society because of their racial, ethnic, or religious orientation usually have a family whom they resemble and from whom they learn about who they are. This is not true for most trans lesbian gay people or people with disabilities or some adopted children. And so Moses is a model for trans lesbian gay identity as someone who was raised by people from whom he couldn't learn about his identity. So that's one paragraph. Here's another paragraph. The response of those who saw Moses' effort to stand up for his people was not very positive, however. At least two of the Hebrews challenged Moses' intervention, and he had to flee to the land of Midian. People who are oppressed may resent efforts to liberate them. The period of transition from enslavement to liberation is often fraught with difficulty. Not everyone is ready to confront oppression at the same time, and many people prefer the status quo to making change. The story of Exodus and the story of trans lesbian gay liberation confront this theme as well. So isn't that amazing? Quite. I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, so, so let's go on to chapter three. Are we ready for chapter three? Uh, yes, sir. I believe we are ready. So I'll try to make this brief if that's even possible. But <laughs> here we have the famous story of Moses uh, and the burning bush, which I I want to make a parallel between Joseph Smith's first vision and Moses and the burning bush. Because all these people out there are trying to say, well, Heavenly Father is a straight white male dude because that's what Joseph saw. Okay, well, that's what Joseph saw. Well, what did Moses saw? Moses saw a bush on fire. Is that what our God looks like? Right? Just because you see God appearing in a particular form to a particular prophet in a way that they're going to comprehend and understand, right? All of these, if you look at visions throughout the Bible, they're very fantastic. They're very uh, culturally responsive and sensitive. Like, you've just got a lot of different images here. You've got. The Holy Ghost appearing in the form of a dove is 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 the Holy Ghost a bird? Right? No. Is the Holy Ghost a bush? No. Is the Holy Ghost a white dude? No. And this oh, is a whole no. lesson. 
this is a whole lesson there. God is really revealing themselves right. in yep. contradictions, things that make no sense. Like, right. it's amazing. Right. And so um, the people that say that we can't see God as Heavenly Mother, well, you just messed up. You just messed up everything we know about how God reveals God's self to us. So just... Um, there is that. Let's talk about God's name in Exodus 3.14. And I've used this many times to talk about how God's name is queer. God's reveals God's identity, God's name, God's reputation, God's whole everything, right? Your name and pronouns. This is the name and pronouns. This is literally God coming out to Moses, God revealing God's truest identity to Moses, and this is where God reveals God's name. And God's name is uh, exactly what queer people have to say to everyone else. Ehye asher ehye. I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. Or in other words, I'm not going to be someone who I'm not. I'm going to be who I am. That is exactly what queer people say. We've always said it. We're saying it now. And we're going to continue to say it until everyone realizes that we're not going to be who we're not. Like this mm. shock therapy, torture therapy that was done at BYU to make us into something we're not. It didn't work. It's not going to work. And there will be no celestial conversion therapy that's going to turn us all straight either. Right. Satan's plan is not going to win. Right. Over my fabulosity. So just everyone get that in your head. I am who I am. Like elder so-and-so, they can't change that. At the end of the day, they can say whatever they want, but I'm still going to be gay at the end of the day. I win. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's God's name. And it's, I think it's amazing how God's name is just so provocative, so present, so powerful, and uh, so liberatory. Like we, when we take upon God's name, we are taking upon that feisty ferocity of I'm going to be who I am. And the world cannot stop it. That's probably what I love most about this whole sentence. God is affirming themselves, mm -hmm. their, 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 their self-existence and their self-sufficiency, that they basically depend on nothing and no one. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. just like, that's pretty baller. Like refusing mm -hmm. to just be put in kind, any kind of box like, and I, I'm glad that you said these other translations, the others way this could be, the other ways this could be rendered. I will be what I will be, or I cause to be what I cause to be. Like, this is who and what God is. He is the, cre like, they are the creator and sustainer of all. Again, dependent on nothing and nobody. I, I just think that's really cool. Right. Um. There is a, a little line about reparations in verse 22 of chapter 3. <laughs> yes, there is. And um, Moses said, oh, wait, whoops. Yeah, where is this? Moses 3, 22. Yeah, Moses 3, 20, yeah, 21 through 23 about, or 22. Yeah, 21 and 22. And I will grant this people favor in the eyes of Egypt. And so when you go, and this is the Lord speaking to Moses, and when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But each woman will ask of her neighbor and of the sojourner in her house ornaments of silver and ornaments of gold and robes, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall despoil Egypt. Isn't that amazing? This, this from, from my context, this is a gay pride parade. We're going to put on all the bling, <laughs> and we're going to march out of there. We're going to march mm -hmm. out of that closet wearing all this cool stuff, right? I almost... Mm -hmm. 
I, I hope that straight people are jealous of us queer people because we get to wear whatever we want without people looking at us funny. And we get to wear whatever we want without being judged for, as something we're not, right? I think we are liberated. I, I could wear a dress to church if I want in a way that uh, a, a, a straight guy couldn't. I just think that that there's uh, something straight people should, if they understand us right, should be jealous of. Uh, I want to say something about four, uh, chapter four, verse ten, because here we've got a large negotiation about Moses telling uh, Moses receiving yeah. instructions about here's what you're going to do. You yeah. need to go, and here's how you're going to uh, do these, uh, perform these miracles that will build confidence in you, and everyone will know that I have sent you. And this is how you're going to know. And and Moses is like, I can't do that. I have a disability. Here's what uh, Alter's translation says. And Moses said, Please, my Lord, no man of words am I, not at any time in the past, nor now since you have spoken to your servant, for I am heavy-mouthed and heavy-tongued. And here we see how God responds to disability. God doesn't fix the disability, and God doesn't replace Moses, but God provides a reasonable accommodation that has a social component, right? And Aaron mm-hmm. steps up to assist in uh, Moses still doing what he needs to do and having access to that, right? Mm-hmm. So Moses isn't gotten out of the way. And I just also want to name that in this chapter, we get a very specific example of how it's the prophet's job to build trust, to persuade and not to skip and say, I inherited this office. I'm ordained as the prophet, so now what I say goes. I'm, uh, I, I, I get everything, you know. No, you have to still do the work. That's what DNC 121 is all about. You've got you've to persuade. You've got to love. You've got to bring people along. You can't just buy fiat. You can't be like King James and say, or you can't be like Pharaoh. Ooh, that's even a better example. You can't just dictate what you want if you're the prophet. You have to do work. Mm-hmm. And I think that sadly, our prophets and apostles, they're great men. If people want me to say they're a great men, fine. I'll say they're great men. But they have not done the work. They're good people who are doing the best they can with the skills that they currently have and the knowledge they currently have, they just have not done the work to get beyond that. And they have not done the work to build trust. They have not done the work to persuade. They have just thrown documents at us and thrown policies at us, and they haven't done the work. And the Spirit has not confirmed what they've been saying, right? This is one of the great injustices of the church, that stuff has slipped by without due process, without checks and balances. We've got this whole spirit thing in the church. And if you look, most people in their heart of hearts are not proud of how the church treats queer people, right? The spirit has not confirmed this. This slipped through like the proclamation on the family was never, was never sustained as scripture by the vote of the people of the church. So I just want to name that there. Certainly. Um, and we've already talked. Uh, so do you have anything else in chapter four? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, cite what else. I, I really focused on uh, chapter four, verses 10 through 12 as well. And uh, I, I like what you highlighted regarding the Lord's response and his accommod- and their accommodation. But I also wanted to point out that the Lord is also declaring that he knows Moses's weaknesses, fears, and shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this, this response that the Lord gave almost had some frustration behind it. Like, I, let me just read this because I really like it. 
who gives speech to mortals? And this is after Moses uh, says what you what you read in verse 10. Uh, I've never been eloquent, slow of speech, slow of tongue. Mm-hmm. And the Lord just says, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing right. or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Like the Lord is declaring that they know Moses's weaknesses, fears, and shortcomings. It's the it's their divine, somewhat polite way of saying, "I said what I said." Like, why are you questioning my decision making? It should also serve as a lesson that God didn't choose. Like, there's a lot of people out there, like you and me, Derek. Some of our friends are out mm-hmm. there. They are called to do some very specialized, but no, but also special work. It should serve as a lesson that God didn't choose those of us doing this work because, you know, God necessarily desperately needs our intelligence, our oratory prowess, our social status, or whatever. There are a variety of reasons that God could have chosen Moses. Moses was educated. It also like could have been his unique positioning as an Egyptian royal turned Midianite shepherd, or to or to simply make a point that Paul states in uh, you know First mm-hmm. Corinthians about the about the was it the weak in the world shaming the wise and strong that that mm-hmm. kind of stuff like as quick as quick to anger and as reactionary as Moses shows himself to be later in the Exodus story he also does demonstrate himself to be a great listener and delegator there are multiple introductions of mm-hmm. new Torah because of Moses listening to people that the law overlooks mm-hmm. he also demonstrates mm-hmm. oh the great convictions you was talking about um you was talking about some great convictions, and you cited Hebrews. Um, I'm going to read that verse you uh, you quoted again. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction uh, with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So, like, great convictions that Moses has. Like, mm-hmm. these are enough for him to be, you know, God's prophet. But anyway, whatever the reasons... Moses may have been qualified. His lack of eloquence was inconsequential to the Lord. And this was still not enough to get Moses to act. And he pleads with God to send someone else, which kind of gives the vibe, God, I don't even Mm -hmm. want to do this. So like, I think a lot of my friends in seminary who are listening to this podcast, they will definitely resonate with this. A lot of them have told me they have run from their call for a long time. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of them are my age or older who have, you know, not wanted to answer God's call for a long time. And now they're here because they've been telling God, pick somebody else, not me, anybody else. But um, God also demonstrates here another one of my favorite Mm -hmm. lessons. God doesn't always take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. And God will provide an accommodation or whatever you need to make sure that you can fulfill what they need you to fulfill. And I just just love that messaging or the way that is communicated in this particular story. Moses looks for various ways out and God declares that God knows what they're doing. God will provide Mm -hmm. and God will uh, make sure that all the means are provided for you to uh, do what it, what God has called you to do. Oh, and uh, further that, um, Oh, come back, come back, come back. I swear this was a good thought. Uh, Nope, it's gone. It'll come back later, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's I think that's all I'm going to say about uh, chapter four. Okay. 
So well, we go to the uh, confront. Are we going to speak more on chapter four? Or should we go to this confrontation in uh, chapter five? Yeah, I just want to say one thing about uh, chapter five. Okay. And uh, yeah, let's. I'm going to read chapter five, verse uh, one and two. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel: Send off my people that they may celebrate to me." in the wilderness. So you may not see this in the in the translation, but this uh when it says thus says the Lord, this is the covenant name of God. This is this is the um I am who I am. Uh mm-hmm. by the way, our our Jewish friends have asked us not to pronounce that name. I know there's people that that pronounce it especially uh, scholars. Um it's the word that is spelled in Hebrew yod hey vav hey and they insert vowels and pronounce it as a, a name. Uh, but this practice is not done uh, among our uh, among our observant Jewish siblings, so so we shouldn't do that either. It's it's uh anyway. So thus says the Lord God of Israel. Notice how this God is named the God of Israel, right? This is very personal, very intimate. This is uh this is this is involved. This is a God who's involved. Yes, God is the God of everyone, even the Egyptians. But there's this principle in liberation theology that God chooses sides. I know that's controversial to a lot of people who just want to be all lives mattery with it. But God is not an all lives matter God. God is Israelites matter, right? God definitively acts in human history on the side of oppressed people, right? Uh, and, and there's a sense in which God is the God of all people. But liberation theology, that's, I think, one of the biggest differences between liberal theology and liberation theology. Liberal theology is like, oh, God is like scientific and neutral and objective and all this like l- lovely stuff that the liberal world likes. Liberation theology says that God has a preferential option for the poor, that God chooses sides. And you and you kind of have to phrase it right to to because there's also a way of phrasing it wrongly because there's going to be people with power that, that say God chooses their side and that's that's not what we want to do. But here you have God named as the God of Israel. And let's talk about why they wanted to be liberated. And you won't believe how many people accuse the queer community of wanting to sin or like, oh, you're coming out of the closet so you can sin or you are, you're, you know, trying to satisfy your wicked, lustful desires and like all this other stuff. Right. First of all, what we're doing is no different than what straight people do. Um, queer people are going to have sinful relationships just like some straight people and some queer people are going to have healthy, responsible, mature, consensual relationships just like straight people. Right. The, the whether it's queer or straight is not the uh, criterion of of morality. It's these other things around love and consent and justice and purpose and commitment and, and covenant and all this other stuff. So it's no more sinful. But my point is, we get hit with, oh, you want to be liberated so that you can go and sin. But what does it say here? Why did they want to go out of Egypt? It's because the Lord called them to worship, not so that they could go out and sin. I think the liberation of queer people is intimately and inseparably connected with the authentic worship of God. I can't worship who God is if I can't be who I am. Hmm. Liberation is intimately connected to worship and service. Like we who are queer in the church 
faithful. We want to be even more faithful. In order to do that, we need to live into our into our we need to live into our authentic identity. And this is not for the purpose of sin, but exactly the opposite. It is for the purpose of glorifying God, the God, the creator of all of us, the God, the creator of diversity, God, the God who is love. Like when we love, we are embodying God. Our love is sacred. Our love is beautiful. Our love is holy. And anyone who would deny that is denying God and denying our access to worship God authentically. There's this Calvinist theologian named John Piper, and he's he's problematic on a bunch of other things. So don't, this is not an endorsement, okay? John, if you're listening, we got some issues. But John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'm going to say that again because it's beautiful. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And right now, Queer people in the church are not allowed to be most satisfied in God. And therefore, God is not most glorified in us yet. But there will be a day. Like, look at how long the children of Israel were waiting in Egypt. Centuries. I hope it's not going to take centuries. But there will be a time where where God's glory will be revealed in, in us and the whole world will see it. These first two verses in chapter five kind of harken back to something that is uh, back in uh, chapter three that I just want to read because I don't think we got to read it. So this is chapter three, verse. This is chapter three, verse 12. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship on this mountain. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. In other words, God wasn't freeing the Israelites, um, you know, for any old reason. He wanted to free them for this purpose of worship. He was, um, God was freeing them so that they could do what they had been created for, an authentic expression of their identity for the true worship of God, which cannot be done without that. And I think this is a theme that is worth highlighting throughout the entirety of Scripture, all the standard works. Anytime we see this, these liberatory narratives or this release or relief from oppression, and there's at least four of these in the Book of Mormon, similar Exodus narratives, God delivers people from something, and then he delivers them to something. And mm-hmm. in this particular case, in every case, actually, I could say broadly, that mm-hmm. something is, you know, God themselves. When God deliver us, deliver, delivers us from oppression, they also deliver us uh, to God. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just want people to be watching out for that as they go through the Exodus narrative, see these ways in which God is bringing people to themselves and uh, what happens soon after God relieves people of mm-hmm. oppression and what, and what uh, God calls them to. I think that's the only thing I wanted to name in yeah. chapter five. I want to I want to name something because we don't want to forget that the Egyptians, even the evil ones, are children of God too. And I and mm-hmm. I'm not saying all lives matter here. What I'm saying is that oppression erodes the humanity of the oppressors and the oppressed in different ways and to different degrees and and right but there is something there's a sense in which the egyptians cannot flourish as fully human if they're enslaving the israelites like no one is right 
if there's not right relationship, right? And so that also, I think, needs to be named when we looked at the liberation of the Hebrews was to be a blessing for everyone, to be a blessing for Egypt, and then to be a blessing for the rest of the world, and to be a to be a light to all the other nations. And I think that is truly what it means for Israel to be the chosen people, not to be chosen in a way of like, oops, these are the only good ones, but chosen as uh, servants to everyone else uh, in order to bless everyone uh, and have a foothold through whom God can can do these amazing things. I want to just quote, without really much comment, this beautiful promise in chapter 6. This is verses... Uh, um, Yeah, I'm going to start with with verse, uh, I guess, verse 4. And I also established my covenant with them, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojournings in which they sojourned. And I also, and also I myself, have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians enslave, and I do remember my covenant. Therefore, Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will take you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great retributions. And I will take you to me as a people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who takes you out from under the burdens of Egypt." And I will bring you to the land that I raised my hand in pledge to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as an inheritance. I am the Lord. Isn't that amazing? I probably don't even have anything to add to that. Quite. I mean, this is a continuation of that theme of God naming themselves as a liberator. And uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's the only thing I wanted to highlight. Okay. Okay. Well, are we done I, then? I think we are. So uh, let me go ahead and uh, begin to wrap things up. Uh, before we do, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features some in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat safe for you at Fireside. Uh, Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at uh, dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and you can search for us on Facebook. Very good. Also want to send a special thanks to David Doyle for editing the transcripts, as well as uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media stuff. 
and the uh, team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines. Stephanie Pearson, Mary Gavilanes, uh, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Also want to thank all the collaborators who uh, showed up to my feedback session for the Anti-Racism 101 class. Your feedback has been greatly appreciated. I'm excited to get to work on some of these things so that we can just make this content more accessible, more expansive, and figure out you know the next steps uh, for this little project uh, that is this class for Beyond the Block, especially Derek's future class. Really looking forward to that. Uh, so just want to put that back out there into the universe. Link to the outlines is going to be in the show notes as well. Um, and it's also going to be in the drop down menu on our website. Same goes for the transcripts. Do we got any events or anything coming up, Derek, or anything people need to be made aware of? Mm, nope. Wonderful. Wonderful. Nope. Other than I just want to just uh, uh, name everyone that this is still Women's History Month. So mm. keep that in mind. And we should also incorporate women's history every month but every month. especially here uh we get a chance to look at these uh these uh women's narratives here in exodus one through six absolutely and if you're not speaking of which if you're not already listening to uh the faithful feminist podcast like go over there and give them a listen they've been doing like i've been very impressed with their coverage of the hebrew bible this year and mm-hmm. it has been yeah it's good yeah, it is. It is mad good. I've been, I've really been enjoying it. It has been a feast over there, mm-hmm. and they you know, work really what, hard. They're exceptionally talented, and yeah, uh, we have a lot to learn from them. Absolutely, absolutely. So if you're not already doing that, definitely go over there and give them a listen. If there's nothing else, thank you all for listening. Till we meet again next week. Thanks. Till we meet again next week. Bye bye.